Let me assert my firm belief that the only thing we have to fear is fear itself. Remember, just because you're doing a lot more doesn't mean you're getting a lot more done. Don't confuse movement with progress. We live in a paradoxical time where we have more comfort but less peace, more connectivity but less connection, more information but less wisdom. The purpose of this podcast is to explore these natural tensions with independent voices who will push our thinking. This is the Paradox Podcast. So it took me getting good enough at it to know how good at it I was not. It took me getting just good enough at it to know I'm not good at it at all. You can learn quite a lot from experience. That's one thing. There's something after that. Have you the will and determination to do anything about it? Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of the Paradox Podcast. I'm your host, Kyle Tibbetts. For episode number nine, I chatted with Jeff Morris Jr., a full-time angel investor and the founder of Chapter One, who's invested in companies like Lyft, Lambda School, Superhuman, Roman, Cameo, and Branch Metrics. Jeff and I had a wide-ranging conversation about the impact this global pandemic is having on millions of lives, the types of new companies and products that might be built to address the new challenges that we face, and what investing in a post-COVID-19 future might look like. We also talked about career-related path dependence in times of rising uncertainty, the unbundling and distribution of talent outside of Silicon Valley, and the importance of family. Prior to becoming a full-time investor, Jeff was previously the VP of product at Tinder, In that role, he led the revenue team to the number one top grossing app in the app store and directed one of the top grossing products in mobile history. Jeff is a super talented investor and operator and I found the conversation super insightful. I hope you enjoy this conversation with Jeff Morris Jr. Well, thanks Jeff for joining me on the Paradox Podcast. Obviously, we're recording this from our respective coronavirus bunkers, so this is not the typical recording situation and it's kind of hard to ignore what's going on around us with the global pandemic. How are you doing just on a personal level right now? Yeah, I'm incredibly sad for the world right now. And, you know, you read the the unemployment rates increasing every day and the the jobless claims, and and it's depressing on so many levels. And then, then you kind of zoom into your own life and, you know, personally, I'm spending a, a, a lot of time right now with my family, which is, um, actually really amazing in so many ways, getting through a, a stressful, traumatic time with my parents, my brothers, my sisters, and we're all under one roof right now, which is really um, something that I haven't done since I think I was in high school. Mm-hmm. And so um, there's a strange kind of family support system that I have here, which is bringing me comfort and we're making a lot of memories getting through this together, which is unique. Yeah. And it's, it's interesting because the podcast is called The Paradox Podcast, and there's so many paradoxes happening right now. I think the first that you mentioned is, I mean, I can't imagine when I'll have you know weeks on end to spend directly with my family. I, I think this is sort of a, a strange thing that we'll all look back on and really, on some level, appreciate kind of the moment for what it was and also just be in awe of what an awful and destructive time period it was at the same time. And um, I think another sort of paradox, too, that I've been thinking about a lot is this notion of like, I really felt more connected to my neighbors and my community probably in the last two or three weeks than ever before. 
And it, on one level, like we're spending less time together because we're all separated, we're social distancing, we're doing all these things to keep each other and the community safe. But folks are going around dropping cookies off at each other's doors. They're doing all kinds of things to pull together while being apart. That's kind of been uh, an interesting, an interesting contrast as well. Yeah, it's interesting because you can't uh, go outside and, and shake their hand, but it's brought you closer together. I think on a global scale, like I've never seen the, the world come together to try and defeat one thing together like this in my lifetime. I hope I don't see it again. Um, and I've, I have a tough time finding examples in, in history of where we're all trying to fight this this thing together. So it's it's a unique time, and I'm sure it's hard to appreciate these moments when they're happening, when they're in real time, but I'm sure we'll look back on this as being one of the craziest moments of all of our lives and something we'll tell our grandkids about. Most definitely. Yeah, I think with distance and perspective in the future, we'll have a whole different outlook on it. As a full-time angel investor through your fund, Chapter One, obviously you're having a lot of conversations with founders in your portfolio, helping them navigate a turbulent, to be honest, totally unprecedented time period. I think we both remember 2008 on some level. I obviously wasn't up here in Silicon Valley for the crash in the early 2000s, so I don't remember that apart from just sort of a conceptual understanding of it. But this is truly unprecedented. I think a lot of the playbook for what you do is somewhat out the window. But talk to me about some of those conversations you're having and uh, how founders are feeling right now as they deal with just tremendous levels of uncertainty above and beyond what they normally would as a founder, which is already a high level of uncertainty. Yeah. So um, last week I sent all the founders I've invested in an email just saying like for the next 60 days, I'm completely at your service for whatever you need me for. And that's led to probably a dozen phone calls. I think it, it really depends on on the stage you're investing in. So for me, being an early stage investor, most of the companies I invest in are still pretty small, especially through, I just started deploying through a new fund. Those are all like less than 10 people teams. And so there's not a lot of a lot of room to, to do layoffs or luckily not a lot of really dramatic shifts that you need to make. And then you talk to some portfolio companies who, who their business is, is doing really well in this period, which is interesting. So you know, two examples are DTC companies. One's Misfits Market. They deliver produce and vegetables to homes. Um, Another's Public Goods. They sell things like toilet paper and shampoo and body soap and vitamins. So those companies, kind of the the essentials categories, are are, are doing quite well. I've very much structured my portfolio around kind of the seven deadly sins or Maslow's hierarchy of needs, depending on on the company or the day, but, but really structured around, around core human needs. And so that's been one of my focuses to date. So luckily, nothing too dramatic happening. I do think, you know, there are a couple of companies I've invested in that have some sports element to them. They're either licensing their software to, one's licensing them to college basketball teams. Another one is like a live sports HQ for trivia type of, of, of app. And those obviously don't have, like in the case of the content company, they just don't have the content to create right now. Mm-hmm. Adjustments being made in, in real time. But I think the the tougher conversations are probably happening more at the growth stage. And so companies who have raised money at, at high valuations where the public comps are um, maybe 50% less than they were last, two weeks ago. And suddenly those companies are having to especially the ones who are thinking about fundraising are having to make 
really hard decisions right now about about possibly raising up down rounds. But I think I'd be a lot more stressed as an investor if I was maybe a, a growth stage investor right now. Yeah, certainly. I think that makes a lot of sense, just given the magnitude of the challenges those larger companies are facing. I think for the smaller companies, we know that a lot of great companies get built in downturns. And I think this actually feels more than just like a, a downturn. And we don't know how long it's going to last. We don't know whether the recession will be kind of V-shaped or something that's more prolonged or even something of greater magnitude than 2008. I think all those options are on the table. But regardless, this feels very much like a paradigm shift in the sense that a lot of the trends that we've already been maybe talking about are getting accelerated by this. Obviously, remote work is one. We have like a forced experiment where tons of people are now doing it, albeit under less than ideal conditions. So I don't think it's really a fair experience of what remote work truly is like. Outside of that, I think you have parents that are homeschooling their kids for the first time and realizing, wow, this is really quite challenging, especially when the technology layer is not set up. And, and, and I think one other thought too that I throw out there is that People have bashed social media for being sort of a, a non-event from an innovation standpoint. I think the famous founder's fun quote is, we were promised flying cars and we got 140 characters. I think the thing that I've noticed, especially using Twitter as a primary source for news on coronavirus through you know Bology and other folks that have done great citizen journalism is, imagine going through this without those things. Imagine no internet, imagine no Twitter, imagine no Amazon. This would be way worse in a sense if we weren't able to communicate and process these collectively. Yeah, I, I agree. And I think, you know, uh, the world likes to find fault in, in the tech industry and much of it's deserved at times. But in this moment, you can't argue that like the citizen journalism that you saw from Balji and uh, a few others in, in the industry is, is quite remarkable. Even the the precautions that people took, I, I had a meeting at Andreessen Horowitz a month ago where I wasn't allowed to shake hands with anybody, and I remember how bizarre that felt, and how at the time you wonder if people are overreacting when mm-hmm. like that was the right response, and we saw we saw this happening in in China. I myself was in Japan a couple weeks ago kind of as as it was starting to break out. And I, I saw it happening, but you don't believe that, that these things can happen to your friends or, you know, frankly, in the, in the United States. Because there's something about being in, in America, I think, that you feel like these things just can't happen to you because we're smarter or more sophisticated. But um, in the case of a, a pandemic and a virus, we were completely underprepared. And, and it's, yeah. it's, it's... But I'm, I'm, I am proud of the tech industry for what we've done to, A, make it okay to stay at home and be kind of give people fair warning whether or not that was received with the level of seriousness it deserved is, you know, I'm sure we'll, we'll debate for a long time. Yeah, I think those are all great points. In terms of our response and, and being caught off guard, and if you compare us to, say, a culture like Japan, where I think something like 80% of folks are wearing masks on a regular basis, they sort of in their cultural DNA are sort of set up to fight something like this more naturally than us. I think if you look at our response, it was definitely slow, certainly at the governmental level. I think there's tons of historical ties. If you look at World War II, we were just very slow to get involved. We had like a super outdated arsenal to fight an enemy like that. And it took us a while to ramp up, but then when we ramped up, we did. I think we sort of had this false sense of security, like, oh, we're oceans apart from Japan and Germany and Italy then. And I think that same post-war mentality still is a factor in terms of how we view ourselves and American exceptionalism and maybe taking that a step too far and thinking that 
you know, this isn't going to come to our shores when, of course, we're a global interconnected world and a virus can can easily enter our country through any number of airports, borders, etc. So I think it's been a humbling experience for all of us to realize that we're just not nearly as infallible as we as we may think. Switching gears a little bit, want to go into a little bit of your backstory and your background. Uh, can you share a story from your childhood that strongly influenced who you are today? Yeah, so growing up, I would say I was a high school student who just didn't really know what I wanted to do with my life. And I went to a, a academically rigorous high school. I was probably like middle of the pack in terms of GPA and performance. But there was one teacher, this guy named Dr. Chandler, who was my English teacher, who I read a book called The Catcher in the Rye, which everybody knows. And I wrote a paper kind of in the voice of Holden Caulfield applied to my experience going to a high school dance. And the terror I felt going to pick up my girlfriend and shaking her dad's hand. And he came back to me after I turned the paper and said, you're a writer. And I said, what do you mean? Um, he said, you're a writer. I think you're, I think you could do this professionally. And no one had ever, no teacher, nobody who I viewed to be someone kind of above me intellectually had ever taken that level of, of, of interest in me. And it really did inform kind of my early career path. I ended up going to UCLA, studied English. You know, for a long time, I thought I was going to be a screenwriter, uh, made money in college reading scripts for production studios in, in Hollywood. They paid me $50 to read a script and write story notes. But what that really brought out of me is I felt, and I still feel that I'm a, a pretty creative person. And I think without that moment where somebody took an interest in me um, and kind of recognized this this talent that nobody had, had recognized. Maybe I'd be, you know, I don't know, maybe I'd be like a, a real estate agent or something. I have no idea what I'd, what I'd be doing, but it, it definitely would not be anything at all creative. And so applied to like my life now, I think my job as an early investor is to find hidden talents in people and to find hidden gems in people who are on the brink of, of becoming entrepreneurs. And maybe they have an idea in the back of their heads that that someone needs to pull out of them. And so I really enjoyed that really early stage founder whose pre-product probably is working at, at a large company and has something in the back of his or her head says like, I actually just don't want to work for anybody. Like I want to go build my own thing. And so I'm constantly trying to find those people. And I think without that early experience of, of being told you're, you're good at something, like I wouldn't be able to, to, to do that for other people. Yeah, it sounds like that was a seminal moment in your life of this teacher pulling you aside and not just saying like, hey, you have talent or like you could actually pursue this as a profession. It's so interesting to think about the path dependence. Had that not happened, what path might you have gone down? And obviously you're pointing out some of the parallels between writing and, and looking for undervalued talent kind of in the Hollywood sense with investing. And, and I'm sure it's fascinating to think about the fact that had that not happened, yeah, you, you could be any number of things differently right now. Yeah, I love that path dependency thought process because it's very topical right now. When I graduated, I ended up going to film school at USC after UCLA, didn't take a break after undergrad and graduated in the last financial crisis. And there just wasn't a single job in the entertainment industry that was hiring. Like I applied for everything. I just graduated from the most, the hardest to get into MFA program in film. And literally nobody would meet with me. And it wasn't a stretch to say, like, I could not get a job. And so I ended up moving back to San Francisco after going through a breakup with a girlfriend. I was like, I'm out of here. And I moved in with my parents when I was 25. 
and ended up just like fighting and clawing my way in a tech job. But I think right now people will be going through similar forks in the road where their industry or career path as they knew it is no longer available. And so being really, really aggressive in this time period that's coming up as to what you want to do and, and making really hard life decisions, I think is going to be necessary for a lot of people to, to survive. And, and that's probably already happening right now. Yeah, it's, it's such a great perspective that you're offering because I can even look back in my own life at like 2008, 2009, I dropped out of Berkeley temporarily. So I did the opposite thing as you. I'm from Southern California and came, <laughs> up, to, came up to Northern California to go to college. Kind of like clamored my way into tech as well through a series of things. And I want to get back to that with you as well because I think that's relevant here. But yeah, I started a company. It was really, really hard. It was, it was not even a traditional startup. It was really doing internet marketing for small, medium-sized businesses right as the economy was collapsing and they had no money to do it. And so <laughs> tried to pivot into a real startup to do software and I was funding it all out of my savings account. It was, it was a disaster, but it was actually an amazing learning experience. And I often think, had I not gone through sort of that trial by fire, that learning experience, that's really where I started to learn marketing and online marketing and all of that. Yeah, it felt kind of awful in the moment, but in retrospect, it was one of the best things ever. And I heard in a conversation with you and David Perel that the first startup job you took was actually in Kansas City. It wasn't even in Silicon Valley, even though you're from Silicon Valley. Sounds like you were back in Silicon Valley at your parents' house and you ended up on a, on a one-way flight to Kansas City. Can you talk a little bit about, speaking of path dependence, how you ended up uh, in the Midwest to start your tech career? So I um, went back to San Francisco and I was applying to all these companies and had some, I guess you could say, bad luck, or maybe it worked out as it was meant to be, but I applied to be one of the first 15 employees at Uber. I, I, I rented a, a desk space at this place called Rocket Space, which hmm. was probably the original WeWork in San Francisco, and I sat next to the early Uber team. I had the table next to me, and I applied to join their team, made like a 50-page deck, and they wouldn't interview me. Applied to Twitter, where my brother-in-law worked, I think I would have been like a top 100 or 150 employee there. Didn't get that. And then applied to Airbnb as like a top 50 employee and didn't get that. And so I was kind of like, shit, like I, I found a lot of good companies. I wish I was an investor back then. but <laughs> Yeah, clearly a knack for identifying good companies early. That was a good yeah. sign. That was a special time period too. I, I would say there was more white space. But then I went to South by Southwest and met this team from, from a company called Zarly, which had just raise like a million dollars the day before at a startup weekend in, in LA from folks like Ashton Kutcher and other people. And it was just a really exciting idea. I followed the the hiring manager on Twitter. He posted a job. I was the first person to apply at 2 a.m. Got on the phone with them the next day. They hired me to a two-month contract, depending on me moving to Kansas City within 24 hours. <laughs> and I just said, you know, fuck it. I'm going to go do this, at least I'll be in the tech industry and then I can kind of figure it out from there. And I ended up staying there for about three over three years. But that was that was how I got my job. It wasn't it wasn't glamorous. I had to move to Kansas City to to break into tech. And I think it's easy to like see people on Twitter and think um, they're different from you or they you know, it was like the path was like much more obvious, but for me it was like the, the least obvious path to to getting where I am now. Yeah, the paths are all nonlinear on some level. I think some are more nonlinear than others, but I think it's important to remember that when you see folks that look like they just overnight figured out how to do all this stuff. 
they may have spent some time in Kansas City or <laughs> in an office in Berkeley <laughs> spending all of their savings as I did. What do you think? Like Kansas City, when I build consumer products, I always think about people in Kansas City and I never think about people in San Francisco. And having lived there after growing up in the Bay Area, that was my perspective that I got from there, which which has stuck with me. It's just like, do not build products for people in San Francisco. That's like the death of consumer, specifically for consumer. If you're building SaaS, mm-hmm. like, of course, build for San Francisco. But, but that was a great lesson that I, I think about that all the time. Were there any other lessons, whether it was spending time in Kansas City for the first startup you worked for, or coming to LA, working with Tinder for a long period of time? Were there any other lessons beyond just hey, don't myopically focus on this very narrow group of people that are affluent in a big city that, you know, might want to do uh, Uber for X, Y, or Z and pay exorbitant amounts of money for some premium service. Were there any other lessons beyond sort of who you build for that you pulled from just those experiences being outside of kind of the core of Silicon Valley? The big lesson at at that first one was uh, more of a marketplace lesson, which was when you launch a, a marketplace make sure you have supply side figured out because demand demand will be short lived if you don't have supply. And so in the case of, of, of Zarly, we had, I think 40,000 requests in like our first month or something like that. And we had an 8% completion rate on requests on the marketplace. It was a similar to TaskRabbit. It was a kind of name your price and people will do something for you type of marketplace. And so that was just a, a really great marketplace lesson, which I always, when I'm in investing and meet marketplace founders, um, I'm always kind of thinking about supply side and, and really challenging their assumptions on supply side acquisition. Because I think demand, it's pretty obvious, like you need demand, but that should not be the starting point for your, your marketplace in most situations. Totally. Your background is obviously in product. What are one to two really, really big lessons that you learned from my product perspective at Tinder, for example, that really just sort of stay in your brain. And when you talk to other founders, you're investing in other companies, you always look kind of through this lens in terms of how to think about product. Yeah. The biggest thing from Tinder, and a lot of people ask me for advice on monetization, it's just like, you have to pick the right categories. So the category that you build within is really what matters in, in terms of monetization. And dating happens to be a category that people have monetized since really the late 1800s, which was when people started taking out ads in newspapers to promote themselves. Mostly these were males who were paying what would now be $5 to take out newspaper ads that describe themselves. And then all the way up to Match.com and OkCupid and so many examples of people who have built subscription products in, in, in dating, which is a fantastic business model when you have scale. And so that's the, the biggest thing is, is just making sure the category has enough willingness to pay on the on the consumer side and that you're you're really building something that serves one of those core human needs whether it's Mm -hmm. you do homes or or food or love those are the categories i really look for and so within social especially and within consumer it's really tempting to say you know we'll get to scale and figure out how to monetize users and i think that's a very to me a, a very outdated way, way of thinking even in consumer social I, I just I kind of cringe when I hear those pitches because I just know the sooner you think about monetization and have self-awareness about your customers willingness to pay you won't fall into this situation one or two years in a building where you just realize 
your product won't work unless you have basically layered on an, an, an ad network on top of it, which is very hard to do. So mm-hmm. yeah, Rory, and then, and then on the product side, I love being close to, to, to revenue. And I would say to any person building product, whether it's a product manager, a VP of product, or even people who work in, in marketing or, or sales, like having a scoreboard is so valuable mm-hmm. to showing your impact. And when I was first getting into marketing, I was doing more more like content marketing and, and community building. And what always frustrated me was I didn't have a scoreboard. And then when I kind of moved over to doing more um, paid acquisition, I was like, this is really fun because I have some budget to spend and I have a very clear funnel that I can I can optimize and at the end of the day when I have my quarterly reviews like it's pretty clear how how I'm doing at work um, and so just being close to revenue at Tinder I joined kind of early stages of, of monetization and pre-IPO and was able to to be part of a team that was doing over over a billion dollars in revenue per year with really healthy subscription margins and so being close to to revenue for me, is is really impactful, and it's just fun to be able to drive drive business outcomes like that. Completely, yeah. And I think your advice is sort of interconnected in a sense. If you're choosing where to build a company, you want to pick a category that is meaningful enough that you can capture revenue and build a durable business. So, in the macro sense, that kind of feels like the category piece of it. But then, when you're within a company, picking a role or um, a part of the team, whether it's marketing or product, that is closer to revenue is great because yeah, like you said, you're going to feel the impact a lot more. I think one thing over the last 10 years of doing marketing is I as well kind of started off doing marketing that was probably less tied to revenue outcomes or um, you, you, you couldn't score yourself as closely in terms of just actual customer transactions and becoming more conversant a little bit on the finance side and just understanding how directly your efforts are attributing to the bottom line of the business. It's obviously just helpful in general because it's easier to quantify your impact. But I think it's more rewarding too because you feel like, okay, I'm, I'm helping build a real business. I'm not just driving you know, theoretical brand awareness or maybe on the product side, driving engagement that doesn't lead to sort of revenue outcomes of any kind. And, and so... I think especially given seasonally where we're moving as an industry, where we've been moving for a long time after this really long expansionary period with low interest rates and people could get away with doing growth, 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 and and not caring so much about building a real business. It feels like your advice and your insights there are going to become more relevant uh, over the next two, three, four, five years than ever before. Yeah. I was just going to say like right now in 2020, where we are in, in the world, make sure that you have a scoreboard uh, because if you don't, it's going to be hard to, to justify your impact. And just knowing that you uh, can show your company your your output, I think it's even more valuable right now. Yep. Switching gears a little bit to becoming an investor, when did you know that you wanted to become an investor and were there any particular investors along the way that strongly influenced your thinking around uh, becoming an investor and pursuing that direction? Yeah, so I got into it casually like a lot of other operators. A SaaS company pitched me on their product when I was at a company, and I liked the product so much that I not only tried to bring it to my company, but I also got on the cap table. And that was in 2013, and I really didn't take it seriously, mostly because I didn't have the capital to take it seriously at the mm-hmm. time. So I did a couple really small checks, kind of when AngelList became 
a platform and had syndicates, I was then able to grow my quote unquote LP base to a point where I could do much larger checks and started to become comfortable with the idea of investing, you know, a hundred hundred K, three hundred K checks. Mostly those are those are slightly later stage deals, but really fell in love with investing through that process. Ended up being a scout for index ventures at one point and then got to the point in my career where I just need to make a, a decision as to what I want to do. I'd uh, raise fund one for chapter one, had over 70 LPs. A lot of them were people who, you know, frankly, I, I, I love and, and really want to do a good job for. And it, it seemed like being an operator and also trying to be a, an investor with a large set of LPs was, which is not the, the best decision for, mm-hmm. for the fund. And so going back to actually a month ago, I think it was when I when I jumped off from Lambda School and decided to be a, a full-time investor. And Lambda School was a company I, I invested in personally. I did my MBA thesis on the company. I had spent a lot of time with, with the company before I joined the team. And so after I joined, it was um, it was tough because I I love what they were doing. I love uh, my teammates, but my heart was just really in a different place. And that was that was tough to tell my teammates and it was also you know it's one of those things where people are going to ask you like what went wrong right and i wrote a blog post about like the 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 truth is actually nothing went wrong at all it was literally me just having to to follow my heart and i think so many times in life you make career decisions based on optics and what people think you should do and so in this case like maybe seeing to the, the one-year date would have been the best LinkedIn story. But yeah. I've just decided in my career that I don't really care about that stuff. And making really tough decisions quickly is what's most fair to your team and most fair to yourself because we all have a limited number of years or however long it is to, to do what, what we're doing. And, and you should just really value your your time. So that was that was what happened recently. And it was... Um, yeah. Uh, it was it was bittersweet to say, say the least. Yeah, I mean it's very very hard to do one thing well. It's hard to be a great investor, and there's there's investors that spend decades just becoming very good at that. But doing two things well is impossible. And I think that there was probably a period where, especially as you were ramping up on the investing side through doing the Angelus Syndicate and working at Tinder, it was a great way to get started as an operator angel. But you reached that point where you sort of had to choose operator or angel. You couldn't continue to mash those two things together. And so it's tough to make that leap, I'm sure, on some level, because I'm sure there's there's aspects to operating that you maybe miss, or there's a learning curve that you theoretically would have continued on on the product side. But that would come at the clear cost, at the opportunity cost of continuing to climb the learning curve around being a great investor, which sounds like is your true passion deep down at your core. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see, um, agree with everything you said, uh, the tools available to be an operator and an investor and the number of scouts in the valley um, and the number of operators who have access to capital. We've never seen anything like this. Mm-hmm. And I, on a personal level, saw how hard it was to do both, especially as you manage teams. And, and I, I just don't know how how this will all play out. I think on a employee level, like you want to be supportive of employees following their passions outside of work and the way I always thought about investing was it was actually what I like to do when I went home at night. I'm not a gamer. 
I don't watch a lot of TV. I like to, to think about investing, but you know, there's some, there's some point where like, it's impossible to do both to the best of your ability. I just don't believe unless you're like Jack Dorsey DNA and you uh, <laughs> just have like some superhuman ability to, to multitask. Yeah. I found it to be, um, towards the end, very, very hard to do both. Yeah, no, I, I can totally understand. I, I made my, uh, my first angel investment maybe about a month ago. And in fact, they just, they just kind of publicly launched its company actually in the, the education homeschooling space. And oh, cool. it's just, it's just been fun to, again, nights and weekends jam with them on marketing and, and exercise my brain in a slightly different way toward a different problem set. Like you said, I don't, I don't game. I don't, I don't have tons of hobbies. I go running, you know, every day and I have a two year old daughter. So she takes up a lot of my time, which is how it should be. But I can totally see how it's not scalable to do both. Uh, and that's just literally writing a first check. And so it's going to be fascinating to see how the operator angel thing plays out, particularly in this new environment that we're in right now as we're in the middle of this health and economic crisis to some level. So kind of looking ahead, and, and again, we're in an incredibly uncertain situation. No one knows how the coronavirus thing is going to play out. But in terms of themes and companies that you're excited about, emerging out of this uncertainty. What are some of the things that are really top of mind that you're seeing as you're talking to um, founders or that you've been thinking a lot kind of independently about that you think are going to be more relevant in the post-COVID-19 era, which hopefully that's uh, sooner than we think. But what are some of the themes that feel especially relevant now that maybe felt less relevant before? Yeah, I think some of these were happening before, but they'll just be accelerated and I guess before I go into the themes I do think Q2 on a founder level will be really interesting because I think a lot of people will be building companies to solve many of these problems because now I think there's new white space to to solve which uh, whenever the world changes the needs of of consumers and companies changes but the the areas that I've I've focused on and and I think We'll have interesting moments are obviously job markets. I think we already have 3 million folks in the past eight or nine days who have become unemployed. Mm-hmm. So what do you do with with that group of people to make sure they get back to earning income sooner than later? And so that's an interesting market. I've always been really interested in just reskilling and upskilling. So, you know, the lender schools of the world, are there different versions of that for other verticals that will now be uh, more necessary. I think we've all seen the collapse of the healthcare system in many areas. There's been a nursing shortage in the U.S. for many years, and I think you know we'll continue to see marketplaces emerge to to fill those gaps. And then, you know, I think there's probably uh, going to be some um, level of acceleration of remote work, which you know I've talked to actually a lot of companies who in my portfolio who are feeling a lot more relaxed right now because their physical costs um, are so low that they just feel like they can get through this a lot easier than companies who have who are centralized and so the remote work piece will be more interesting I also think on a company level there might be some responsibility to offer work from home infrastructure and processes regardless of, of, of whether we're in a, a pandemic or not, because if this happens again, companies will have to be prepared to to offer this type of work situation again. And so 
I, I feel like there's very few companies in the world that know how to do remote work very well. Mm-hmm. Uh, when I joined Lambda School, they were not fully distributed, but I think 35% of the team was distributed. And they the processes were insane. And Zapier and GitLab, all these companies who, who have kind of laid the foundations, have really, really figured out how to make remote work accessible. And so I think we'll see that continue. And then I don't know how we're going to deal with the healthcare system beyond training, but it feels like, like there needs to be better awareness of when pandemics might happen. For so many of us, this just was a blindsiding event. And so I'll, I'll be especially curious, the YC Summer 20 batch, I think will be really interesting. They're just accepting companies this week, I feel like. Mm-hmm. I, I guarantee you it's going to have a, a, a coronavirus-inspired vintage to to the class, which, which I'm excited to see. Yeah, I think I've seen some interesting discussions along those lines about taking advantage more of wearable technology to see when there's spikes in temperatures and things like that. But I think you're right that there's going to be a whole lot of things that technology can do to warn us about pandemics early, to enable us to flex into more remote postures when we need to. Personally, I've been maybe relative to, say, the conventional wisdom on Twitter. I maybe have been less bullish on remote work than some folks. I think there's still going to be an advantage or at least a trade-off culturally being co-located that you can't necessarily replicate with remote work. That said, I think in a world where pandemics can happen, I think it's likely that with this particular pandemic, they talk about the second wave. So you have like the first wave, which sounds like Italy is maybe starting to crest their wave. I think South Korea and China is on the other side of it. We're just coming up the curve. You might need to be able to to flex and be flexible around being co-located or not. And so maybe we go back to work, but maybe by the fall because of a second wave, maybe we need to spend some time. Those of us that are in co-located companies need to actually flex back into remote work temporarily, right? For maybe a, a one month duration for that second wave. So I think having the flexibility and the tools and the technology to be able to, to shift and be flexible will be critical even for companies that don't go full remote, which obviously many companies will and will uh, do so successfully. So I'm excited to see what, what those companies look like as well. Yeah, I've talked to um, uh, Will Quist, who's at Slow Ventures, about this a lot. And we're kind of calling it omni-channel work, where you have the physical storefront in, in retail, that you have an online component, and being able to offer both of those in the work environment being a physical location that feels like your home where you can go have face-to-face interactions and have that experience, which is very special. But also, like like you said, being able to flex out as needed. So if you have a pandemic or I'm personally sick or whatever the situation is, the company's just better prepared to, to support you. And yeah. it feels like that's where the world is going because of health reasons, but also rising real estate costs, mm-hmm. time the globalization of, of technical talent. Like there's so many shifts you could talk about that are, are pointing us in this direction. And I think we're going to get there sooner than we thought. Yeah. And, and I think the real estate point's a good one too. I think even for companies that still have an interest in a co-located aspect to their culture and to work, if you only need to be in the office, let's call it three out of five days a week, maybe you only need half or 60% of the real estate that you have now. 
And so your burn rate contracts because you don't need all the space and startups have open floor plans anyway. And so the idea that you can just have seating that's available for these days that are much more dynamic and you need lots of collaboration, but then maybe you have one, two days a week that are just very dedicated to focus work, which I think is, is sort of the advantage of remote and not being distracted. So I'm excited to see where the future goes as well uh, on that front. Um, you mentioned the essay that you wrote when you were in Japan, Headline versus Reality. You talked a lot about the importance of family, and I can just tell like in this conversation when we started off before we hit the record button that family is something that's super, super important to you. Can you just talk about what family means to you personally and, and maybe just at a societal level how important you think family is as an aspect to, to life? Yeah. So I grew up, I'm one of eight kids, and we're all very different. Some of us are different political parties. Some of us have really different personal interests, but we all really respect each other and we all um, love each other. And so for me, your family is why you go to work every day. And they're the, the people who know the, the arc of my life and respect my decisions in life the most. And so, you know, I think, as you mentioned, like, this time period has been a moment to reconnect with our families. And for me, like, I, I, maybe I was born in a different generation, but I, I, <laughs> I, I mean, you have, you have a, a child yourself, so. Yeah. Uh, but I, I really think there's nothing more rewarding than, than uh, spending time with my family. And that's, that's kind of how I try and, try and start, structure my free time. Yeah. No, I fully agree. I think you're preaching to the choir. And sometimes I feel like I was born in a different generation as well, particularly in San Francisco. Although I'm sure L.A. is very similar in terms of the culture around family. I think that the great thing about family, having your own family, being connected to siblings and parents is it just like you said, it gives you a much greater sense of meaning and purpose. I think that's sort of just built in. You don't have to go find it. It's just right there and it's all around you. And especially since we had our, our daughter, who's now two, I think parenthood has just been a tremendous journey and a tremendous adventure. And I, I know you mentioned in your piece that that's something that you're looking forward to also pursuing and prioritizing in the future. And I think it's just uh, it's just amazing because, yeah, this is this is now the reason why I go to work. This is the reason why I do X, Y and Z is for my family and this little human being that's depending on me versus just, you know, like you said, updating your LinkedIn profile, which is much less important. That really doesn't matter. What's an issue that you care a lot about personally, but rarely get the chance to talk about? Um, definitely mental health. And, and so I think luckily the public conversation has made it almost cool to talk about mental health. Mm -hmm. And I love that. So I saw my first therapist when I was 20 years old and I was in college and I was so embarrassed to tell my family and my friends that I was seeing a therapist. Yeah. And it was really, uh, for me, uh, life-changing. I Within, I think, six sessions completely changed my perspective on life. And uh, the fact that you have open conversations where people like Kevin Love and athletes are, are supporting mental health, and then, and then you have mental health being offered um, as a benefit in the workplace. I think at times as, as entrepreneurs and, and founders, like, you discredit how hard this is mentally. And yeah. Starting a company is the most draining, up and down adventure that I think you can do professionally. And so, yeah, I'd like to talk about mental health more and to try and get other people to to open up, up about it because I think for me it's it's been life changing. I like how mental health is now coaching, sort uh, of synonymous at this point. Yeah, there's different credentials and 
but really it's just people sitting in a room talking to someone and trying to to sort their lives out a little bit or get get some adjustments to 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 change their their view of of their life circumstance and I would encourage every single founder to to see a coach or a therapist on a regular basis and I'd also encourage people who are married to to go to uh, relationship therapy if they if they need it uh, because mm-hmm. because all these things are are so beneficial and have really changed my life yeah, I agree with you that this openness and authenticity around mental health has been one of the best trends probably in the last maybe two to three years. I remember sort of earlier on in my career here, it felt like we were in this era where it was very much around the optics. So it's how is this fundraising announcement going to look on TechCrunch? How is it going to look if we signal X, Y, or Z? And I think just acknowledging, like you said, that building a company is one of the hardest, sometimes loneliest, and certainly one of the most psychologically and emotionally grinding journeys you will ever go on. And just openly talking about it, I think is is very positive. I mean, I think even on the employee side, that there's obviously a lot of stress too involved in building a company. And great athletes have great sports psychologists. There's no negative stigma around that. I think it's viewed as a weapon in their toolkit or part of their support team. And I think that for founders, operators, family members, spouses, it's the same thing. I think it's a very, very healthy thing that we've moved in that direction. And not to pull it all back to coronavirus, but we're going through a very intense, stressful time period that I think is probably exacerbating and really stretching people's mental health in a pretty significant way. And my hope is going back to kind of the early part of our conversation that folks will continue to build tools, companies, products that make mental health an easier thing to deal with. I mean, certainly when I think of telemedicine, one of the most obvious examples of telemedicine working well is speaking with a therapist or a coach or a psychologist. I mean, that's something that's very easy to do with technology without having to be co-located. So I think hopefully we'll see much, much, much more of that. Agreed. Yeah. I did a deep dive on mental health maybe six months ago, and um, I was shocked to find out that in half the zip codes in the US, there isn't a single mental health professional um, in that zip code. And so uh, speaking to, to telemedicine, there's that infrastructure and that that software just needs needs to exist in the world for a lot of people. And trying to, again, going back to Kansas City, like trying to get people all across the, the country to, to have that level of support. Um, yeah. Because I think we take for granted in a lot of places in, in the US that they actually don't have access to those professionals. Yeah, but we have mental health deserts and technology can very easily start to solve some of those problems, especially if the culture, right, continues to become more open around this and people feel more uh, comfortable, you know, having those conversations and trying some of those products. The last part of the podcast, and we're in the, the final few innings here, are questions that I ask every guest and you can take it in any single direction that you want. There's obviously no right answer. The first is just a riff on the, the now famous Peter Thiel interview question. What's something you believe that most people don't? This is such a hard question, but I've always believed deeply in the unbundling of of Silicon Valley, and um, especially on the talent side, I've probably worked with a couple hundred, maybe 300, 400 people from Upwork in my career, and so many of those people, I'm like, if you lived in Los Angeles or San Francisco, like you, you would easily be the most horrible person, and I just fully believe in the unbundling of, of talent across across the world. And so I don't know if that's controversial, but I, I, I think there's people all across the world who are just as talented as the people who live in, in San Francisco. And if they just had access to 
the same opportunities. I think I think I think they would be amazing employees, and so uh, that's something I'm I'm promoting actively and have have hired for in the past a lot. Yeah, that makes sense. But one thing that I've talked about with a few folks is this idea that maybe the actual location of Silicon Valley, and you're from the Bay Area, so maybe you have a better insight into this than me. Maybe it becomes almost like a university town. Maybe it's like a lot of the ecosystems there, a lot of the great companies are there. And so maybe you go there, you do a tour of duty, and you you bounce out and go to Kansas City or something to build a great company. Do you think there's any credence to that to that potential philosophy? I do, and I, I love that um, analogy where you come to Silicon Valley for three or four years, you create your network, those core people who will be a part of your professional life forever, and you you work really hard in those four years to to build meaningful relationships. Then you can really go wherever you want because you know technology exists in. New York, Seattle, Austin, Arizona, really all over. And so I think there's so much you can do in four years living in San Francisco that you can't do anywhere else if you work in tech. And so I would encourage everybody to spend some time assuming it's successful and they can they can make it happen in, in the area. And then, you know, on a, on a company level, I think companies will want these employees who are in the area to be distributed because it'll just be, frankly, cheaper for them. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I think the flexibility on the employer side is just going to be unlike anything we've ever seen and, and people can, can leave when they, when they want to. Totally. Last question. What's the best piece of advice you've ever received? So famous uh, retail executive, a guy named Ron Johnson, opened all the Apple stores. Steve Jobs hired him and he's been someone I've, I've, I've known for a long time, but he came in and, and gave a talk at one of my last companies, and there were 40 people in the room. Um, and as he was the speaker, and I, I think I was interviewing him. Anyways, long story short, people would ask questions, and he would ask their names. And even as the, the talk started, everyone went around and just introduced themselves really quickly. And at the end of the, the talk, said one more thing. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to show you a little, like something I learned in retail. And he went around the room and he named all 40 people's names. Oh my gosh. And keep in mind, he was also being asked questions. So people were, as they were asking him a question, he would ask them to say their name. Yeah. The question. And he was able to not only think about his answer, but also memorize their names. And he said, very simply, remember people's names. And so when I stopped to, to meet people or shake their hand at parties or wherever i try to remember that because it is very powerful if you, it's a superpower it's one that i lack quite frankly but it's it's amazing if you can do it yeah i think we all lack it but i think that just extends to just being a very empathetic person where if you can't take the time to, to know someone's name um mm-hmm. like how are you invested in that in that conversation and i think only someone who worked in retail for 25 years or 30 years could build that superpower yeah that's awesome Well, Jeff, thanks for joining me on the Paradox Podcast. If folks, particularly early stage founders, want to reach out, what's a good way for them to get connected with you? Yeah, so it's jeff at chapter1.vc or jmj on Twitter is probably the best way. And I'd love to talk to anybody who's starting companies and generally speaking and try and make myself available. So let me know. Awesome. Thanks so much for joining us. And yes, folks, go follow Jeff on Twitter at jmj. You will not be disappointed He has great tweets almost every single day. Thanks, Jeff. (laughs) Thank you. 
We appreciate you taking the time to join us for this episode of the Paradox Podcast. We're aiming for commute-length conversations with original thinkers that will push your perspective and pull you into the marketplace of ideas. If you're new to the podcast, we encourage you to check out our previous episodes. In episode number eight, I chatted with Gumroad CEO Sahil Lavinga about his failure to build a billion-dollar company, escaping our ideological bubbles by engaging people we disagree with, moving to Provo, Utah from San Francisco, and more deeply appreciating complex problems. To take away some of the political stuff and use like a tech example, yeah, it's similar to like this happened around Christmas time. Jason Fried said, you know, if you're being asked to work nights and weekends, they would basically try to make you work all the time you had this is a a crappy situation and then this other person said you know people that don't work 60 hours a week oh that's right the hard work debate of December 20th yeah that was massive remember that one huge yeah it was kind of funny how big it became actually I guess that's what happens on the holidays no one no one uh, wants to talk to their family (laughs) yeah but uh it was interesting because it was the same thing like they actually were not arguing no totally fundamentally different things someone was saying if you want to be successful, you're going to have to work really hard and work 60 hours a week. And right. Every, what he actually said was anyone that's been successful has worked 60 hours a week in their 20s, something like that, yeah. which is probably true. Yep. Also, everyone agreeing with that, founders and CEOs, or at least early employees had equity in whatever they sure. were building, right? Jason Fried had said nothing about that. He said, if an employer asks you to work nights and weekends, if there was more time, they would ask you to work that too. Sure. No equity, no ownership work it's just fundamentally different there's separate mutually exclusive yeah. ideas that actually don't even necessarily conflict but they, they got actually conflicted they all, got turned opinion. into two narratives and but it, it was, was like, like there's the work hard yeah 60 hour a week side and then there's the you know 40 hours or less or anything else is evil but actually no one in my opinion it was basically a bar fight but no one was fighting it was just mm-hmm. like Everyone agreeing over here and everyone agreeing over here and this like tension existing. Yeah. And I just see that all the time. It's kind of the same thing. I feel like there people think there's a fight happening. Sure. I don't know the answer to this. I was thinking about writing an essay at some point called How to Disagree on the Internet or Software People for People Who Disagree. And I, I literally couldn't figure it out. <laughs> but, so that's where I stand. It's a hard right. challenge. A quick housekeeping note. We just launched a new website for the podcast at paradoxpodcast.co, which will have all episodes and everything you need to know about the podcast. If you enter your email address and subscribe, you'll get new episodes sent directly to your inbox one to two days early. And you can always drop us a line on the contact form. We read every single message and really value constructive feedback. That's a wrap for this episode of the Paradox Podcast. If you'd like to connect, you can follow me on Twitter at Kyle Tibbetts. If you enjoyed the episode, please rate and review us on iTunes to spread the word. And until next time, take care of yourself.